forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. So, Doc, welcome back to the podcast. I know you've been doing a lot of traveling lately, and it's good to have you join us again. Yeah, it's good to be back. So, I want to throw out something that I know is super important. I mean, it's actually really integral to your career. It's a whole part of your story uh, for yourself and, you know, Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience. And it has to do with an evolution that took place in medical science, really, in the 1940s and 50s. And it was related to a, a particular scientist. We'll get into that in a second, but kind of delay the groundwork. Prior to that, in modern medical science, it was believed that a specific disease or specific symptoms always had specific causes. So, for example, if you had a sore throat, it meant that you had a throat injury or a throat infection. Throat injury, throat infection equals sore throat, right? It's a one-to-one specific cause to specific effect. But in the 1940s or 1950s, there was a Hungarian-Canadian scientist yeah. named Hans Selye who began to look at this stuff and really developed what at the time were very radical new theories. Do you, you want to tell his story? Yeah, I, it's just a, it's a great story. And I, I think it really is uh, kind of representative of where we are right now in 2022. Um, if you look back into the history of what we do at Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience, it's really a, built on the shoulders of some you know, amazing people. You know, Pavlov and Salye and Skinner and computer development and EEG technology and all these things kind of merging together in a point in time in the world where we're able to leverage so many things that couldn't be done before. But it's these people that come be, uh, came before us. You know, Hans Selye, who was nominated, nominated for the Nobel Prize 17 times and published over 1,600 scientific articles and wrote 40 books. I mean, I'm not even ever going to come close to anything like that, right? But we want to carry some of this these truths forward. And so uh, I want to just tell you the story of Hans Selye and uh, how, the, how his work has impacted what we're doing today. So this guy was you know, born in 1907. There was uh, four different physicians in his family history, right? And so at 17, he started medical school. Uh, he gets a, uh, an MD as well as a PhD in organic chemistry. Okay. So, you know, pretty sharp guy decides to, uh, come to the United States and then to Canada, uh, to do some work. But prior to that, when he was in medical school, so probably 1920, he was doing rounds with the doctors and as a student watching what the doctors were doing and they were doing a lot of what you started the podcast with uh greg where they would say uh this symptom equals this disease 
And then they'd go to the next room. This symptom is this disease. And after a while, Selye would look and say, well, what about the symptoms that all of these people have in common? They're all tired. None of them want to stand, right? They're all losing weight. They're all kind of down emotionally. There's a commonality among these people. It's kind of like he defined it like the disorder of being sick, that that these symptoms aren't just this one thing. And it was very interesting because from what I gather, he experienced a lot of tension from his mentors about that and to the point that stop bringing that up and just do what we do, right? You know, So he kind of shelved that, but that's going to come back later. So he decides that he really likes the chemistry side of things and starts uh, working in a lab in Canada, Canada, McGill. And in this lab, they had discovered some different uh, hormones, uh, particularly things related to like progesterone and estrogen and those kind of things. And so um, his first task was to see if there was some other hormones out there, uh, particularly related to the the ovaries. And so um, what he did was he dissected uh, multiple of these uh, cows and got the ovaries and got the juices out of those and then injected those into rats thinking he's going to find something. So when they did original work on testosterone, right? And that was injected into rats. Rats got bigger, stronger, you know, things that we know about testosterone. When they did progesterone, they noticed things, estrogen. So Celia is coming on the heels of that with the attempt to, I'm going to find something else, right? So he's really excited that he's going to find something. So he's injecting all these rats. And sure enough, he goes to dissect the the rats, and he finds a common theme across all of these rats. And he's like, I've done it. You know, the Nobel Prize is right here, right? You know? And so he finds this common theme, and all the rats that he dissected, they all had ulcers, bleeding, stomach lining, okay? Ulcers. They all had enlarged adrenal glands. So this hormone that he had found uh, was causing them to have larger adrenal glands. And then their thymus, which has to do with their immune system, was actually smaller than it should be. And he kept doing this over and over again. He's like, I've got it. So he's about ready to publish, and he has to cross-validate what he's doing. So he decides to use saline and inject into the rats, so something that's not what he's been doing, and goes to dissect these rats a couple months later. and the rats that he actually injected not the hormone that he thought before, but just just something that would just uh, be non, non-invasive for the rats. All of a sudden, he dissects the rats, and they all have the same things as the original rats. Enlarged adrenal glands. They all have ulcers in the stomach, and uh, the, shr- the thymus, which is the immune system, is shrunk. Okay. So, so essentially, it was a control group. It essentially gave them a placebo, right? Yes, there was nothing basically. in there. And the placebo control group manifests the same symptoms as the, the non-control, non-placebo group, right? So, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's very weird. And uh, it actually, when you read his biography, he actually gets so frustrated by this that 
it appears that he went into almost like a depressive episode. Like he was just like, I've done all this work and I can't figure out what this is. Right. And he kind of like just loses time for a while. And then out of the blue, and this is how a lot of these things happen, right? Out of the blue, he starts to think about, is there, he starts to think back to those original patients he saw when he was a medical student that had these generalized symptoms that really weren't brought on by a particular thing, but it was the act of experiencing something invasive on the body in general, whether that was this bacteria or this virus or this injury, they all experienced the same symptoms. And he started to think back to that, the disorder of being sick, okay? And he starts to realize, you know what? I am a little bit different in how I handle the rats than most people. So even though he, I think, dissected over 15,000 animals, uh, he never really liked handling the rats. And so it was, it was kind of known that he'd be like drop these things. He'd drop the rats and they'd find him in the corner, like trying to corner the rat and pick it up with a, you know, a scoop, you know, a, a dustpan and, a, you know, and, and then he'd get the rats. And eventually sometimes he'd like put them in like a little vice you know, to hold them in place so that he could inject them. And he was just, it was kind of an odd scenario. He loved chemistry and working, but he hated, you know, working with these rats. And so he's very clumsy with the rats. And guess what he thought? So, so the only thing, he starts thinking, the only thing that th th these rats have in common is that a mad scientist chased them around a room, you know, scooped them in a dustpan, stuck them in a vice and a thing and stuck an injection in them, right? Like that's what they have in common, right? Yeah, which was absolutely really because all of his colleagues, you know, they're just doing this left and right. I have a daughter who's a, a, um, a chemist, or organic uh and she's always working with mice and stuff, you know, and she just picks the things up. And But he didn't like doing that, right? And um, so it was, so he starts to realize it's something I'm doing that's causing this to happen to these rats. So then he says, I wonder if I didn't like put anything in them, but I just created a different scenario. So he goes up into the, uh, it's in the winter, goes up into the attic of the, building that he's in and puts a few rats up in the attic. Then he puts some at normal temperature and then he puts some down in the furnace room. So nothing different except he's just going to change the temperature that they're exposed to. Guess what happens when he goes to dissect the rats? The ones that are up in the cold and the ones that are in the furnace room, ulcers, enlarged adrenal glands, shrunken th thymus. The ones where the temperature was kept the same, nothing was wrong with them. They, their their uh, adrenal glands were normal, no stomach ulcers, thymus. So he starts to realize it's temperature. Then he starts putting them like on this treadmill kind of thing where the only way they can stay upright is to be moving all the time. And guess what happens? Same thing. So he starts to do all these different things that are more environmentally not something going into them, but doing something changes in their environment and their physiology is changing. Now think about that for a second. To us, that sounds, yeah, of course. But this was like cutting edge. Like you actually did something to somebody's environment and they developed an ulcer. Think of those of you out there that have some type of gastric type thing or some reflux, you know, or 
could that be from something that's not what you ate, but how your brain is working? Right? Well, right. But, and especially, right, there's that loss of control. So some guy, right, you're, you're just a happy rat, you know, doing whatever a happy rat does. And some guy plucks you and sticks you in a cage in a cold place or a hot place or he sticks you on a treadmill, starts messing with you, right? And it, and it, and it makes you sick. Yeah. And, and you have no control, right? I mean, I remember hearing once, uh, I think you and I talked about this one time, I saw some study and I don't know if it was real or not, but something on the internet and they were talking about the most stressful jobs and the least stressful jobs. And somebody was making the point that, that you immediately assume that the most stressful jobs are like being a brain surgeon or an airline pilot. But it turns out that wasn't the case because the brain surgeon, the airline pilot have a high degree of control yes. over their situation. The most stressful jobs to have a lot of responsibility and no control where somebody's jerking you around, right? And you can't control all the ways that you're getting jerked around and it st stresses you, right? And that's what's happening to these poor rats. Yeah. And in that control situation, you'll measure people's hormones. And their testosterone will be lower, right? Uh, estrogen, progesterone will be off. Well, nobody stuck something into their system, like an injection of something. It was that sense of not having control and being dominated, right? Um, that can change, change, literally change your hormones. Like this sounds normal to us, but we're talking 80 years ago. Nobody had ever thought of this concept. It was always... A disease creates a symptom, right? And so what he does is Selye says, I'm going to call this stress. Now, he would later say, maybe I should have called it strain, but he called it stress. And we all know about stress in the body, but everybody else in the medical community were like, what are you talking about? The only thing that we know that is this word stress is used for is like something in mechanics, like a spring has stress on it. You know, an engine has a stress on it, but a human can't have stress on it. And that's when he developed this thing called the general adaptation syndrome. Okay. And in that, he talked about these three different phases. There's an alarm phase where something new happens. I'm in a cold place, okay? I'm in a job. Some mad scientist plucked me up in a dustpan and stuck me somewhere, right? Or, you know, we could relate that in our human situation, that alarm phase. All of a sudden, my, you know, I'm going through this, you know, terrible situation where there's been massive change. Yeah, and it's different. It's not that equilibrium or that homeostasis I'm having my autonomic nervous system is alarmed, okay? In real life, I mean, like, a, you know, there's a danger, a fire alarm goes off, right? Or, you know, I see a bear in the woods, right? There's an alarm phase. My flight got canceled. I'm in Chicago in a snowstorm and I can't get to my daughter's wedding or whatever, right? Exactly. The alarm happens. And alarms happen. And Salier would say, yes, that's part of life. And, I mean, he would even go on to say, that we need stress. Okay. Uh, he, a couple phrases that I, I really love of his is uh, to be totally without stress is to be dead. Okay. Is that, that we need stress. You know, our heart needs stress to get stronger. We need stress. Uh, we need this allostasis that we talked about earlier. 
Uh, he also said this about stress uh, that I liked. Um, man should not try to avoid stress any more than he would shun food, love, or exercise. It's not the stress, but it's the worrying about the stress that gets us. Or if we get stuck in situations like people who are in combat or difficult job situations where that alarm phase is happening constantly, which leads us to um, phase two, which would be what's called resistance. So the body wants to like get out of this state. Okay. It, it's alarmed. And it wants to run. The zebra wants to run. It wants to get away from the lion. We want to get out of the job. You know, we want to um, get to the daughter's wedding, right? I go yell at the gate agent. You get me on the next flight. Why are you screwing me over, right? Yeah. So we're, we're stuck in that resistance. Like this happened, but now I'm like resisting it. I don't want to stay in it, right? The the rat wants to get out of Selye's hands because he's like not holding it correctly, right? And what Salier des- described as some signs of this, and I want you guys to think of this out here, listeners, some signs of being in that resistance phase is irritability, frustration, poor concentration. These are components of what Salier's second phase would be is resistance. We all experience the alarms, like we talked about earlier in dynamic resilience. If it's high tide, get ready, it's going to be low tide, (laughs) right? Uh, We all have these things happen to us. But when we get stuck, we get this resistance piece where we're now unable to kind of get out of it and we get what's called a, a learned helplessness going on, which leads to the last phase, which is exhaustion. And this is where the adrenal glands, you remember earlier when we talked about him dissecting the rats, he talked about the adrenal glands being enlarged. Well, why were they enlarged? Because they were releasing adrenaline too much. They were getting overworked. And what happens in the exhaustion phase is they just stop working. Is They can't keep pumping out the demand that's being asked from them. And the typical symptoms of the exhaustion phase, or we might call it now adrenal fatigue, would be Fatigue, burnout, depression, anxiety, decreased tolerance for stress. You know, you know, somebody says one little thing and I go off the handle, right? Those can be signs of my system, just like the rats, is now literally trying to change internally because I'm in that exhaustion phase. I'm changing my physiology based on external things that are going on. So to summarize for the listener, the stress, the general adaptations, general adaptation syndrome, right? That Celia describes is first something happens that's unexpected. That's the alarm, right? Pick your scenario, right? My flight gets canceled, my lose my job, uh, you know, car accident, the quarterback gets a pick six, whatever the thing is. Wow. Secondly, now I resist. I fight back. I'm anger. I'm irritable, right? All these things happen because my body's being flooded with adrenaline and a lot of things like that measured, but it can only maintain that sort of resistance, that sort of amped up state for a little while. And then my body just crashes and I'm just wiped out from the experience, right? And how many of us go through this kind of cycle, or I'm sure everybody listening has experienced the cycle multiple times makes you wonder what happens when this becomes a lifestyle that you're constantly going through 
these kinds of stress cycles. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great example. And that's where this, this kind of leads us is, uh, or, you know, what does happen? Great question on that. And the thing that kind of sets us up is not stopping this cycle. So the opposite of this alarm resistance exhaustion would have occurred back during the reaction to the alarm or definitely reaction to resistance, which would be to get in the recovery side of things. So remember we talked about allostatic load a few podcasts ago, and there are stressors that happen, but we have to plan for the recovery that's going to come alongside of that. And a big recovery component is sleep. Sleep is our natural built-in mechanism to deal with the alarms that will happen. Then the other question is, is it really an alarm? Or is it a, an anticipation, a what if or what about, like we talked about in the last podcast, is that setting me up to be in alarm resistance and eventually exhaustion, which is what we would talk about as adrenal fatigue now, where the adrenal glands can't keep up. But what happens if I stay in that phase? Well, Selye's work would go on to multiple people, Bruce McEwen, Sapolsky, great, and we're going to learn more about some of these other people. But uh, what started to come out of this work was if those adrenal glands keep asking or keep giving out adrenaline and the body keeps reacting to that, there's, prob- there's four primary things that are going to happen from that exhaustion phase over time. And they, those are defined in a category of what we would call metabolic syndrome. And the first one of those is because of that demand happens around the adrenal glands, which is, you know, lower in our gut, you know, not up by our head, you know, what happens is because of the high demand, our body thinks it needs to go into the storage capacity to deal with the adrenals are asking or get putting out all this adrenaline, which then activates the body to want to absorb more sugar. So we want to absorb huge amounts of sugar during this resistance phase. It's a natural piece because of the adrenaline's being released. The adrenaline's being released, so the cells will change their structure and absorb more sugar. So what do we do? We start to store more fat around where the adrenal glands are, which creates the belly fat that we see. So I stress out and, you know, con, you know, stick my face into a, you know, a half gallon of ice cream or eat a pizza. Yes, which has a l- little bit of a normal physiological response. If I was being running from a lion, that's okay because I'm going to burn the pizza and the ice cream off. But if I'm running from my, what if, what if this happens? Or what about this thing that happens? Watching so, the stock market and worrying about my retirement 20 years from now. Right. I can create the same physiological resistance response, which causes the need for more sugar, but I'm not running from anything. So I start to store it right around the adrenal glands, which creates that kind of apple shape in a person where, and I've done this before when I'm sitting on the plane and maybe I got on early and I just kind of look to my side as people walk by and it's amazing in our culture how much of this this apple shape exists. And I just kind of look for a few minutes and just apple, 
apple, apple. And then you look down like at the feet and you're like, that looks normal. The legs, the feet, or you look up at the shoulders, that looks normal. But everything's getting stored around the belly because that's where the adrenals. So the number, one of the number one reasons for obesity in our culture is this resistance phase or this adrenal overload. Those, in those rats, those adrenal glands got bigger because they were overworking. So you're saying, Doc, that stress makes us fat. Yes. I am saying that. And, and it's interesting when you look at, like people have pointed out, go back and look at pictures, just photos from the street, you know, in 1970. Yeah. And look at the difference between us 50 years later and what's changed. Was life harder in the 70s? It's hard to argue that life was worse or the world was worse in the 1970s than it is today. But what's changed is we're plugged into the internet, we're plugged into media, which creates all these stress-inducing disorders, right? Or creates all of these whatabouts and what-ifs for us. Exactly. And gets us stuck in that resistance phase, which is wreaks havoc on the body. Okay, not just on rats, but on our bodies, right? So the, the second thing that happens is first you have obesity, okay? And then the second thing is cardiovascular disease gets increased significantly by being stuck in the resistance phase. I mean, this doesn't take a rocket scientist, right? If you're stuck in sympathetic and the heart is working double time, right? And your diet is changing in a way that's not healthy, that all of a sudden your cardiovascular system gets super compromised. So the second factor of the metabolic syndrome that comes from this resistance phase is cardiovascular disease. Now, a third one that comes from this is memory disorders like dementia and Alzheimer's because of what's going on with some of the sugar load. And then the fourth one, you, our, our listeners should be able to maybe figure this out, okay? If my adrenal glands are asking for or being released too much or they're releasing too much adrenaline, which the number one component of that adrenaline is to cause me to absorb too much sugar, okay? And I've got this massive demand constantly because I'm stuck in the resistance phase for sugar. What would be the disorder that's likely to develop in the body when it can't keep up with this sugar demand? Diabetes. Type 2 diabetes and there are estimates that if we stay on the rate that we're at in the next 20 years, the diabetes will literally bankrupt our entire system because we're growing so fast in type 2 diabetes. But one of the huge components of the development of that is this resistance phase, this metabolic syndrome that Selye kind of led us into uh, when he started to see that stress can literally affect physiological. So all these things I've just talked about, cardiovascular disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, dementia, all brought on by external. This wasn't some virus I got, right? This wasn't, you know, a bacteria or, you know, something I bumped into that caused that. This was something external stressor that caused that. Well, and we'll talk in future episodes because this is really something to explore. What changed in the last 
40, 50 years to create so much stress on us that it's literally changed our bodies and our body types and our, and our, and our health. And it's, you know, you see it across almost every demographic group in America and increasingly in other countries. And it's interesting as I travel around the world, you realize that the more other countries begin to adopt our media and our lifestyles and everything else, that the more they start to look like us. And it's really sort of strange. We'll explore that. But but there is another side to this that I want you to talk about. And that is that you mentioned a few minutes ago, not all stress is bad because Selyer actually coined a word. He talked about stress, two things. He talked about the negative kind of stress and he had a word for that. And then he had a word for positive stress. You want to talk about that and how we can incorporate that positive stress into our lives? Yeah, we refer to that as kind of a eustress E-U stress, uh, which is kind of from a Greek word for good stress as opposed to distress, right? Yeah, it's kind of if we, you know, it might not have made sense earlier when I said, you know, man should not, when Selye's quote, man should not try to avoid stress any more than he would shun food, love, or exercise. Because while Selye saw that if we get stuck in resistance and that leads to exhaustion, all these things happen. He also know, knew that we need stress to stay alive. If you don't have stress in your body, you will die. You need stress. You need the heart as a muscle that needs to have stress. But the other thing that it has to have is recovery. And that's what we have to have that balance, that coherence between our level of stress and recovery. In the breathing space, the breathing world, it's your inhale keeping up with your exhale so that the heart, when it goes into stress, which happens when we're out of oxygen. So every breath you take, when you exhale, if you're watching your heart, you will see that the bottom of that exhale, the heart will start to beat faster. It's in stress. But when I give it oxygen and it gets to that full inhale, the heart will then start to beat slower because it relaxes. And if we're breathing correctly, we're creating this coherence or this balance between stress and recovery, which then becomes extremely powerful for us. Uh, Think of working out. Working out is a stressor. Now, a lot of people, when they're working out, they're not really reading what their body's doing, which we'll get into in another episode. How do we read what our body's doing and not just exercise with our head, but actually exercise with what is my body telling me? But if we read that correctly, when the body hits a certain point, we now know it's time to go into recovery. And the biggest component of recovery is sleep. And not only are we kind of going on the negative, on the stress side in our culture, we're actually going in reverse on what we should be doing on sleep as well, where sleep is is no longer nine hours and 15 minutes a night. It's not even the optimal of eight. It's less than seven. So we're, we're having all the stress, but then we have no recovery as well, which then creates this lack of what's called allostatic, allostasis, which makes the, the system stronger. Um, so we're kind of getting it from both sides. We've got the resistance from the alarm phases, but then we don't do any recovery for that. If I recall, Selye, didn't he talk about with that use stress, that positive stress, he looked at that general adapt- 
adaptation syndrome, right? That those phrases. But he said, if it's set towards positive goals. So for example, I want to achieve something and I have to work to achieve it, whatever that is, right? I want to paint a watercolor or I want to run a 10K or I want to, you know, build my kid's place at the backyard. But when I have to achieve some goal working towards that without it being a stressor, I mean, negative stress would be when I don't have control over it. But when I have control over trying to achieve my goals, that's builds, that, that, that makes me stronger, right? I mean, didn't he talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Is that the, we need that stress in there. I mean, when we sleep and we go into REM, REM sleep, our brain is a very stressed state. That's what allows us to uh, have memory consolidation and eventually leads to, you know, what is our long-term memory health going to be like? But that's a very stressful event when that happens. A lot of emotion, etching of memories on the hippocampus, but it's a good stress because it allows us to engage in something that's a very positive thing. But then we, because it's happening in the sleep cycle, we then are able to rest after those stages of REM sleep. So there's a balancing of the two. It's all about the balance. And a lot of us, especially as we get older, we don't know really how to find that balance. Like all of a sudden we get motivated to go exercise and then we, you know, pull our hammy because, you know, I like, I went out and ran like I was in, you know, high school, right? Well, that's not going to work at 57. So I need to be looking at my heart and what is my heart telling me? And, you know, wear a heart monitor, different things like that. So we know where's that optimal state. I want to stress my system, but I don't want to send it into such a, a significant resistant phase that it leads to exhaustion. So there's somebody listening out there and who's thinking, man, I feel like one of Cellier's rats. And I feel yeah. like I've been chased around the lab and scooped up and, you know, messed with. They're feeling like, man, Dr. Royer is describing my exact situation. I, I don't sleep well. I'm tired all the time. I'm shaped like an apple. What can they do practically starting today to begin to turn this around? And I know it's a long journey and we'll talk more about stress in future episodes, but what is something that they can wake up tomorrow morning to try to regain uh, something and get on the, the, the positive side of this? Yeah, I would say it'd probably start before waking up tomorrow morning. It would be uh, when you go to sleep tonight. So the number one thing I would focus on if you're feeling in this state is what is my recovery side of things looking like? What is my What are my sleep states looking like? Getting good. Uh, there, there's a great book out there called Sleep Smarter. And uh, I'd recommend going through each stage. Each chapter in that book is kind of some things that you can work on on your sleep that will help fight off some of this constant resistance stage. Uh, last podcast, we talked some about doing some breathing exercises. Those are some you know immediate things you can do, but I would really be working on sleep. We're going to have some podcasts devoted to those, so I'd really pay attention when those come out, that if you're one of these people that feel like you're on the beginning stages of metabolic syndrome, or maybe you're actually in that, that we start to really focus on the sleep patterns. We're going to learn more about how hormones affect that too along the way and what we can do to adjust that. But sleep smarter is a really good place to start um, and really becoming very disciplined with how your sleep works and giving yourself space and time to get 
good eight hours of sleep each night. Wow. Thanks, Doc. And thanks for teaching us about uh, Hans Selye, Dr. Hans Selye, the father of stress, who, you know, his theories were so radical at the time, but now we understand them. But we have to begin to figure out how to do something about it. And that's what Inner Armor is all about. That's what Royer Neuroscience is all about. And all of us can begin taking small steps to take control of that and get our stress uh, manageable. So, and try to get on the side of positive stress in terms of goal setting and working towards something good. So thank you, Doc. Awesome. Yeah, it was great being with you guys. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Doc. See ya. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.